0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, in the second chapter and the twenty-fourth verse. The twenty-fourth verse in the second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Whom God hath raised from the dead, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now, this is obviously a part of a statement. It's a part of the sermon preached by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem. Having quoted the prophet Joel, he goes on to say, I I begin to read at verse 22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, Now I want to deal particularly with that last phrase, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it, namely death. Now here the Apostle Peter is uh, preaching what may be regarded in many senses as the first sermon ever preached under the auspices of the Christian Church as we know her at this present time and as she has been known throughout the centuries. And you notice the content of his sermon. He's preaching about the law of Jesus Christ. And here he comes to what he and all the other apostles regards as the crucial statement. And it is this tremendous statement concerning the fact of the resurrection. But you notice that the apostle is not content merely with stating the fact. He goes on beyond it to show why this had to happen. Peter's assertion is not only that Christ has risen from the dead, but that he had to rise from the dead, because, as he puts it, it was not possible that he should be holden of it, death. Now, that's the matter to which I'd like to call your attention on this Easter morning. It is the great theme of the Christian Church, the theme without which, as I want to try to show you, there never would have been a Christian Church at all. Now, there are two two aspects, as you see at once in this one verse to this great message. The first is the fact itself, the fact of the resurrection. We must start with this, and never was it more necessary, perhaps, that we should start with it than it is at the present time, because it is this very fact that is being disputed and queried by men, and that, unfortunately, not merely by men outside the church, but even in the church itself. We are living in an age which is telling us more and more that these facts don't matter at all. That what we need is to catch a certain mood or a certain spirit. The facts are being rejected and are being dismissed. And not merely being dismissed, but with scorn and with derision. Now, this is such a vital matter that I must call your attention to it before I come on to the second portion. If the fact of the resurrection is not a fact, Well, then I say, there is nothing to preach, and there is no church. But yet this is the astounding thing, how this is being increasingly questioned. And let me show you the kind of thing that is being offered us instead of it. Now, I take it in this form simply for the sake of convenience. Having prepared this sermon, more or less, in my mind... I was amazed to see in the Guardian for yesterday morning, the chief article, the main article, devoted to this subject. The heading is, The Dream That Moved Abraham. But here it is, you see, a long article. And there's just one point in the whole article, and that is to dismiss the fact of the resurrection. Let me give you the crucial portions of this statement in the conclusion. The resurrection accounts are not about a fact. They are a fact. You see, the resurrection accounts are not about a fact. They themselves are the fact. They are a tremendous, quixotic, unprovable, disturbing affirmation that the life of a man, even though he had failed and died doubting on a cross, could be of boundless significance. Could be immensely encouraging. In the best Jewish prophetic tradition, the disciples of the prophet, after misunderstanding and denial, realized that he had been right. They found the courage to proclaim that their teacher lives, that his life was and is and will be eternal life to any man who finds it so. He goes on Faith was not belief, it was passion. Determination, making true, not finding true. Faith did not believe in facts, it created them. The Greek would naturally ask, did he really rise from this world into the next? The Jew would naturally feel like Paul of Tarsus. That man has got me, therefore he must live. If believers could now find the faith to relinquish their belief in facts. If they could be persuaded to admit that the Old and the New Testament are not about amazing facts, but are themselves the most amazing fact, those books may once more become open books, surprising to believers and unbelievers alike. The inspiration which moved the whole nation through hundreds of years to turn its experience into the legend of human destiny may actually move us to make of our lives something more legendary. May tempt us with the mad desire to leave to those that come after us a legend rather than an accumulation of facts. Now, I simply read that to you because it seems to me to be a very convenient way of showing you the kind of thing... That is being believed and being preached at this present time. You see, it not only rejects the facts, but it uh, says that if we really are to get the Christian message, we must do that. And yet this is amazing and astonishing. There is a man, as you can see, claiming great learning for himself and a wonderful insight. And he contrasts what he regards as the Hebrew prophetic attitude with the Greek attitude. He says the Greeks caused the trouble. The Greeks are always asking questions, is this a fact? And yet, even in his own article, you see, he does the very thing uh, with which he charges others. He says that the genius of the Hebrew religion was that it was not based on facts, but that they've got a marvelous idea. But that's pure Greek thinking. The truth about the Hebrew religion was that it was solely a religion based upon historical facts. The Old Testament is a book of facts. How did the Hebrew nation ever come into being? It was through the call of Abraham. No, that's a fact. That's not a legend. That's not an idea. It is a sheer fact. The whole of the New Testament is nothing but a record of God dealing with that recalcitrant people. This view tells us that this was a genius of a nation. They've got a great idea. They created a legend. It wasn't based on facts. They created the facts. And they presented this great message. Whereas the Old Testament gives you a picture of a dull and a stupid people who are always turning away to worship idols, but God had to do things to them. He not only makes them from Abraham, he sends them down to the captivity of Egypt and he brings them out. Facts, the Red Sea being divided, Pharaoh's hosts being drowned. And how they go on repeating these facts? Look at the psalmist when he's dejected and cast down. How does he encourage himself? Well, he simply looks back across history and says, this is the God whom I believe in, the God who did this. The God of acts, the God of facts. And so it is right through the Old Testament. And yet, you see, we are told that we must dismiss the facts and just catch this wonderful, optimistic view of life. And then the astounding statement that the Apostle Paul wasn't interested in facts, that he was just a man who said, these are the words, that he said, that man has got me, therefore he must live. What we are told about the Apostle Paul is that he didn't base his preaching upon facts at all, but that he says about Jesus of Nazareth, this man has got me, therefore he must be alive. But what does Paul himself say? Well, you had the answer in the reading at the beginning. The Apostle goes out of his way to say that the whole of his preaching is based upon facts. He takes the trouble to tell us about the appearances to individuals to the assembled company of apostles, to the 500 at once. And then he says, and last of all he appeared to me. He says, if Christ be not risen from the dead, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is vain. And he says, we have been found to be false witnesses. The apostle is so concerned about the fact of the resurrection that he writes that great chapter. And this, of course, is true not only of the apostle Paul, but of the whole of the New Testament. Look at the Apostle Peter here, in this first great sermon. What does he emphasize? What does he preach? Well, it's nothing but the fact, and the great fact of the crucifixion, and the fact of the resurrection. He reminds these people of it. This Jesus, he says later on, hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Now, my dear friends, we are confronted by a very simple choice, it seems to me. You either believe the New Testament, or else you indulge in your own theories and vaporizings and suppositions. But that this should be done in the name of the Christian faith is nothing but a scandal. And what amazes one is that the wrath of God isn't manifested upon it all. But what a utter lie it is, what a travesty of the facts. The New Testament is so honest, it opens itself before us, and this is what it tells us. That the disciples themselves, after the crucifixion, were utterly cast down and hopeless. They were disappointed. They said, we had thought, we had hoped that it was he who should have been the Messiah, the deliverer. But he was crucified. He didn't make any attempt to defend himself, and they took him down and buried him in a grave. And they were completely cast down and utterly hopeless." And there would never have been a Christian church at all, but for this tremendous fact. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death. For it was impossible that he should be holden of it. And so, you see, Peter preaches the resurrection. It's the whole basis of his preaching. This is the crucial fact. And as we are told in the book of Acts everywhere, the first preachers, the apostles... They preached constantly Jesus and the resurrection. That was their one theme. They would never have been preachers at all but for the resurrection. There would never have been a church at all but for the resurrection. And, of course, as Peter goes on to show yeah, the final proof of the resurrection was the sending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter puts it like this, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Very well. Here is the basic statement. That the Lord Jesus Christ arose from the dead and out of the grave, literally in his body, on the morning of the third day. A fact. The whole of Christianity is based on a fact. And this was the preaching of the first apostles and preachers. But now, as I want to show you, the apostle doesn't content himself with that fact. He says this is not only true, but it has to be true. It is true of necessity. He says because it was not possible that he should be holden of death. That's why God raised him from the dead. Well, now let's work this out together. And let's see why this must be a fact. Let me suggest some answers to this question as to why it must be a fact. And the first answer is the one given here immediately by Peter himself, which is this. He could not be holden by death because of who he is. Now, this word, holden, it means defeated, conquered, mastered, held fast. And what Peter is saying is, it it was not possible that he should be conquered by death. Why? Well, because he is who he is. Listen to Peter putting this. For David, he says, speaketh concerning him. He's quoting Psalm 16. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. End of quotation from Psalm 16. Men and brethren, says Peter. Let me freely speak to you of the patriot David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his lines according to the flesh he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Now you see the apostle's argumentation. This is Christian preaching. The exact opposite of that lie that says, don't believe in facts, just let this person get you. Get hold of this idea and live by this idea and create facts that will help others who come after you. It's the very opposite. This Jesus has God raised up whereof. We are witnesses. Why? Well, because he is the Holy One. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption, writes David. He wasn't writing about himself as Peter proves. He died, he was buried. His body was rotting in the sepulchre. No, no, David was writing prophetically. It's a messianic psalm. And he is writing about this blessed Son of God, And therefore Peter's argument is, this Jesus is the Son of God. How do we know? Because he's risen from the dead. He wouldn't have known it but for that. The resurrection is the final proof of the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal Son of God. The Apostle Paul, you remember, uses exactly the same argument in writing to the Romans. He does it at the very beginning of his great epistle, in order that there should be no mistake about this at all. Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That's it. And this is the argument of the apostle Paul in one Corinthians fifteen. It is the argument of the whole of the New Testament. Peter preaching again in Jerusalem, as recorded in Acts three, refers to him as the prince of life, the author of life. That's why he rose. That's why death couldn't master him. He's life in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is God, the Son. And it's impossible that even death should hold him because he is the Holy One of God. Have you got that, my friends? Not only is it a fact that he rose, he had to rise because he is the eternal Son of God. He is the Holy One of God. He is life itself. And life is stronger than death. But let me go on. It was impossible that death should have held and mastered and conquered him, for the second reason that had it done so, the prophecies of the Old Testament would all have been falsified, and God's word would found to have, be found to have failed. Now this is another most important point. Peter again makes this point. He quotes Psalm 16, but that's not the only. Reference or prophecy in the Old Testament to the resurrection of our blessed Lord and Savior. There are frequent references to this in the New Testament in different places. Listen to Peter putting it in his first epistle again. Of which salvation, he says in the first chapter of the first epistle, beginning to read at verse 10, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow? What a summary of all the Old Testament prophecy. There it is, as plain as anything could be. But if you want something still more authoritative, let me remind you of what our Lord said to the two miserable men on the road to Damascus who didn't believe that he'd risen from the dead. And this is the Lord's own answer to these modern infidels and skeptics who parade their learning and get fascinated by the use of the word quixotic and so on, as if that were marvelous. These Greeks, these modern Greeks, who evacuate the truth of facts and have nothing left, but an idea, listen to the Lord himself answering them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things, and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, the Old Testament had prophesied this, In its pictures and portraits of him it had included this. And so the apostle naturally makes this point in this great sermon on the day of Pentecost. It was impossible that death should have held him, because if it had, the prophecies would have been falsified and God would have been found to be a liar. But come to the third statement. It was impossible that he should have been conquered by death, because if he had been, our Lord's own plain statements and prophecies about his resurrection would likewise have been falsified. I wonder that you've ever noticed as you've read your Gospels that every time our Lord referred to his death, he always added a reference to the resurrection. But the disciples never grasped it. But he told them repeatedly, Now let me give you some examples and illustrations of what I mean. Here, for instance, I read in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 41. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There it is. He's saying it quite plainly to them. But they don't grasp it. But let me give you another. Let's go to the 16th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And let me read that verse 21. And this, let me remind you, is immediately after the great confession of the apostle Peter... At Caesarea Philippi, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples that he, how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. You see, he missed the resurrection, he only saw the death. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offence unto me. For thou savourest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And let me give you one other example and illustration of this point. I am giving you these facts, my friends. Because I want you to be able to answer this modern lie that would rob you of your salvation. Are you going to believe the cleverness of modern men based on nothing but their own suppositions and theories? Are you going to reject these facts? If you do, as the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, you are yet in your sins. You're damned. You're going to hell. You must beware of the facts. Listen to it again in John 2, 18 to 22. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Well now there are many others I could quote. Read them for yourselves. The point I'm establishing is this. That if he had not risen literally in the body from the grave, he would have been found to be a liar. His claims would have been false. His prophecies would have been falsified. But let me go on to a fourth reason. If he had been held by death and conquered by death, well, then it would have meant his defeat. And that would have meant the triumph of the devil. Now, this is another crucial point. Why did the Son of God ever come into this world? Well, the answer is given in a well known statement by the Apostle John in his uh, first epistle. And in the third chapter, where he puts it in these words, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came? Of course. You're clever moderns, they don't believe in the devil. They don't believe in the devil. They don't believe in sin. They don't believe in evil. They don't believe in the Son of God. They don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in his atoning death. They don't believe in his literal, physical resurrection. They don't believe in the person of the Holy Spirit. And still they call it Christianity. But that's why the Son of God came into this world, that he might undo, nullify, bring to nothing the works of God of the devil what are the works of the devil well for our purpose this morning we only need mention one of them and that is that he brought death into this world where has death come from the apostle Paul answers that question death is the result of sin there never would have been death were it not for sin you want the authority again? Here it is. You see, I don't give my opinions from this pulpit. I'm an expounder of these scriptures. I don't claim to know more than the Apostle Paul about these matters, or more than the Apostle Peter. How can I know? How can any of us know? This is what Paul says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for the role of sin. That's Romans 5.12. But listen to the author of the epistle to the Hebrews putting it in his way. He's arguing in the second chapter as to why it was the incarnation and the death of Christ had to take place. This is how he puts it. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The devil is the power of death. It's a usurped power, but he has it in that indirect manner as the result of having persuaded men to sin. And he controls death, and he defeats all men by death. If Christ had not risen from the dead in the body, the devil would have defeated him. It would have meant the triumph of the devil. And the whole purpose of the incarnation would have been nullified. It was impossible that he should be holden of it, because if he had been holden of it, the devil would be triumphant and grace, even God's grace, would have been defeated. The thing is impossible, it is unthinkable. Listen again to the Apostle Paul putting that at the end of Romans 5. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's solely the result of the resurrection. It wouldn't be true, but for the resurrection, my dear friend, it was impossible that he should be holden by death, for if he had been, the devil would have been the victor, and God and Christ and the Holy Spirit would have been defeated. It's unthinkable. But come, let me end on a more practical note. And I do this in order again to show you how these modern infidels would rob you of the glorious blessings of salvation. There's no salvation in that. All they say to you is this, that if you get the idea, if you get this wonderful teaching and uh, hold on to it and try to apply it, well, that's all right, that is... Eternal life, in inverted commas. Whatever that may mean. Just words, verbiage, cleverness. The cleverness of this typical mid-twentieth century. Words without meaning. Cleverness without content. God have mercy upon them. Let me give you a word of comfort and assure you Why, we glory in the fact this morning that death couldn't hold him, but that he rose triumphant over it all. Do you know that if he hadn't risen, his redeeming work would have been left incomplete? It was impossible that he should be holden of it. Why? Well, his redeeming, redemptive work would have been incomplete, and that's unthinkable. What are you talking about, says someone? Well, let me put it in this way. He came to deliver us from all the evil effects and results of sin. As he came to undo all the works of the devil, that looked at from our subjective experimental standpoint is that he has come to deliver us from all the results and effects and consequences of the fall. What are they? Well, here is the first. And I want to show you why the resurrection had to happen. Why it was impossible that it shouldn't. The first thing we need to be delivered from is the guilt of sin, isn't it? And of course, he dealt with that on the cross on Calvary's hill. That's what was happening there. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God was in Christ Reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Yes, our guilt was laid upon him. He bore it there on the cross. He suffered the punishment. It's there. He deals with the guilt. Yes, it is. Amen. Thank God. If he hadn't done that, we'd be in our guilt and our sin. We'd have nothing to look forward to but hell and eternal misery. But, my dear friends, we need more than that. In a sense, that's negative. It's absolutely essential. My first need is forgiveness. I must have it. And, as Paul puts it in Romans 4.25, he was delivered for our offences. But Romans 4.25 doesn't end there. He was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Now then, what does this mean? Well, what it means is this. When men fell, he not only became guilty before God, he lost his righteousness. Man was created perfect. He was created in innocence. He was created in true Righteousness. He was made in the image and the likeness of God. And he stood before God and had communion with him. He sinned. He not only became guilty, he lost his standing. He lost his righteousness. He lost the ability to stand before God. Now, you see, this is where the resurrection comes in. Delivered unto death for our offenses. Raised again for our justification. What's it mean? Well, it means this. I need a righteousness to stand in the presence of God. Forgiveness isn't enough to deal with my needs. I must be enabled to stand before God. And here it is. In his resurrection, I am given this righteousness. If he hadn't risen, I couldn't receive his righteousness. But he has risen, and he can give this righteousness. And it is given by the Holy Spirit. It is imputed to us. We are clothed with his righteousness. And that would have been impossible if he had not risen again from the dead. If he had been defeated and had remained defeated in the grave. He could never have given us his righteousness. God could never have imputed it to us. But he has. Listen to Paul putting this in an incomparable manner in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know we not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ We are baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like us Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. And on he goes. Now if we be dead with Christ we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more sin death hath no more dominion over him for in that he died he died unto sin once but in that he liveth he liveth unto God likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that's just another way of saying this that we are in Christ and that what happened to him happened to us oh yes we were crucified with him but if it had stopped at that we wouldn't be but he's risen and we are risen we are risen in him planted in the likeness of his death also in the likeness of his resurrection reckon yourselves therefore to be alive unto God because you finished with sin when he died he died unto sin once he dieth no more he's risen he's proved it And we are risen in him. And the apostle puts exactly the same point. You can turn it up for yourselves in Colossians 2.12. But let me hurry to the next point. I need forgiveness. I need this positive righteousness. Yes, but I need something else. I need a new nature. Because as the result of the fall, our nature is polluted. It's formed. And we need a new life. Where can we get a new life? There's only one answer. There must be a new start. There must be a new humanity. As in Adam all died, so in Christ shall all be made alive. What it means is this. There must be a new human nature. The old, the first, has fallen and has failed. And Christ is the firstborn amongst many brethren. He is the head of a new humanity. And it is only in him, risen from the dead, that we can have newness of life and a new start and a new beginning. If he hadn't risen from the dead, regeneration would have been impossible. We receive and are partakers of the divine nature. It is from him, the risen head, that we derive the life of the soul and of the spirit in regeneration. He couldn't be holden by death, therefore. But let me go on. My next need is the need of a representative with God. Though I believe I'm forgiven, how do I know that? How can I pray? How can I have access to God? How can I venture into the holy place? And there's only one answer. I need a great high priest. And thank God I've got one. And I know that I've got one because of the resurrection. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Passed through the heavens, risen from the grave, appeared, rose, passed through the heavens, seated at the right hand of God. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I wouldn't know that were it not for the resurrection. But he has risen, he has passed through the heavens, he has taken his seat at the right hand of God. I know that I have a great high priest who has presented his own blood and ever liveth to make intercession for me. Listen to Paul again. Notice how he says these things. Who shall bring anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Yea, rather... But for that yea, rather, we wouldn't have this blessed hope. It's not surprising the apostle gets so excited about it. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. He's there, not there. He's not in the sepulchre. He came out, he's risen. He's even at the right hand of God, whoever liveth to make intercession for us. What else do I need? I need help and succor. I'm tempted by the world, the flesh, the devil. How can I stand? There's only one answer, in that he... Suffered being tempted, he is also able to succour them that are tempted. He is there. In every pang that rends the heart the man of sorrows bears a part. How can I work out my own salvation with fear and trembling? There's only one answer it is he that worketh in me, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. How can I go on preaching? How could the apostle Paul preach? How can any man go on in an evil world like this? Let Paul answer for himself, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. But apart from him, I can do nothing. And then I'm concerned about this body of mine. It's a fallen body, it's a frail body, it's a body of disease. It wasn't meant to be like this, it wasn't created like this. The body, when God created it, was absolutely perfect, but look at it and behold it. There is death in it, there's decay in it. Is there any hope for this body of mine? There's only one answer yes, in the risen Christ. He rose in the body, He's redeemed the body. We know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Yes, we look to the heavens, from whence also we expect the Savior, who shall change this our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to that mighty working whereby he is able to subdue even all things unto himself. What else do you need? Well, I look at it like this. Here are the promises of the gospel. I'm going to arrive in the glory. Yes, but how can I be assured of these things? The world doesn't look like this this morning. Everything's against me. We see not all things put under men. We see the devil rampant and evil men in control. Is there any hope? There is. Here it is. We see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. My dear friend, there's no assurance, there's no comfort, there is no hope apart from these things. As by man came death, by man came also the resurrection from the dead. The last enemy that shall be conquered is death. But he has been conquered, there is nothing left. He's conquered them all from beginning to end. The work is complete. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God, who giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, brethren, we should be ever confident because of this great and glorious fact of his literal, physical resurrection in the body from the grave. And as it gives me assurance of all this, it gives me the assurance concerning the final consummation of God's great and glorious plan and purpose of redemption For I know that at this moment he is seated at the right hand of God. What's he doing there? Waiting until his enemies shall be made his footstool. All power, he says, is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Yes, he's got it and he will exercise it. There is a day coming when that same Jesus whom we have seen so departing will come again. Riding the clouds of heaven with all the holy angels around him. And he will come conquering and to conquer. He has already defeated the last enemy. And he'll come and remove every vestige of sin and evil out of the whole cosmos. And the devil and sin and hell and all will be cast to a lake of perdition and destruction. And Jesus shall reign Where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. How do I know it? The fact of the resurrection proves it. It was not possible that he should be held or holden even by death. Why? Well, because he's the Prince of life the Lord of glory, the one who will finally destroy all the enemies of God and of man. Blessed be God, who when men with cruel hands took him and slew him, raised him from the dead, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible that he, should be holden of it. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.